The Next Chapter with Prims Ripapat is a production of iHeartRadio. Funniest moment as an athlete? Uh, there's so many. In wrestling, there's just so many crazy personalities. It's kind of a wild sport. But um, let's, uh, one that's PG and, and fair game would be 2002. <laughs> we, we wrestle in this tournament in Las Vegas. Uh, and it's not a nightclub story, but it, uh, it's called the Las Vegas Invitational. And um, it's the toughest tournament of the year outside the NCAA. So you really have to peak early because we don't see all the Big Ten, Big 12 guys, but we do see them there. So it was a big deal for ranking and it was a big deal for competition and setting the pace of the season. So, you know, we're all we're peaking. We're prepped. You know, we're, we're down to wait. Me and my roommate in the hotel are ready for bed. We set the alarm clock, which we feel is the right time. And we wake up in the morning and we're right. And, you know, we get our gear, we get the scale, uh, you know, we're making our walk over to the arena and we're like, ah, it looks pretty dark. Um, but the difference between <laughs> five, six, seven AM at that time, the lighting, it wasn't substantial, but we're like, hey, it should start to get light soon. So we're walking in, everything's pretty desolate. We go to the arena. We've never been the first people at the arena ever. And we were the only ones there. And then we see some janitors and some people mulling around, but really just workers. We go inside. It's just empty, huge arena with all these mats. And we're sitting there and we're like, all right, we'll wait 15 minutes, 20 minutes, nothing's happening. So I went back out and asked the janitor. I was like, hey, do you have the time? And he's like, oh, it's 420 in the morning. And we're just like, oh, my God, what's what? going on? <laughs> so we, go, we decide. We're like, all right, well, I guess we're just going to nap on the mats until people show up because it was like a pain to go all the way back to the hotel, get the cab and all this stuff. So we go back and we just pass out because we're exhausted because we didn't really sleep the night before. And all the athletes start walking in and they like see us like huddled up against each other, like huddling. <laughs> and like, so we're like, it was just a terrible precedent to set for like, you know, a macho fighting sport. And uh, so we turn out that the clock, and we didn't have cell phones back then. So it was just some kind of clock we either brought or had. It had a, a, a different time zone, like, settings oh. on it and we were we set it for like the eastern time zone so we were three hours early um oh but, my gosh but the irony was it was like the best tournament i wrestled probably in college outside the ncaa's because i ended up winning and uh so i guess you know cuddle your teammates more in a public setting i think that's <laughs> i think that's the moral of the story Hey, everybody, it's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. This week's guest is three-time All-American winner, the 2004 NCAA champion and most outstanding wrestler award winner, and the 2005 World University Games champion, Jesse Jansen. Now, coming out of Long Island, some, including the Suffolk Times, have said that the state of New York has never seen a wrestler like Jesse before. In high school, he was the first four-time state champion and six-time state place winner in New York wrestling history. And after four seasons in college, he finished with a 131 and 13 record until this day is the most decorated wrestler in Harvard history. After college, he pursued his dreams of competing at the Olympics, but fell short of his goal during the 2008 Olympic trials. But despite that, he has since made a name for himself on Wall Street in the financial services world, within the entertainment and film industry, as an actor, choreographer, and also stuntman, and also within the community as a board member of the Fetal Center for the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, the Harvard Varsity Club, and also Beat the Streets, an organization that's supports 3,000 plus athletes in the New York City area aimed at teaching life lessons through wrestling. I think what stands out to me in this interview is how Jesse, like all the other guests I've interviewed over the course of the show, 
struggled in saying goodbye to the sport he loves so much, especially after having not achieved the Olympic goals he set for himself. And also how he's used that disappointment as fuel heading into his post-retirement career. And so he uses that disappointment, that chip on his shoulder, as he calls it, as a positive source of motivation. And it's the reason why he's so driven today and has accomplished so much after retiring from sport. And that made me reflect on my own athletic journey and how maybe I should be grateful for the disappointment I experienced and how my tennis career ended. Because without that disappointment, maybe I would have never achieved the things I've achieved in sports broadcasting or my pro tennis comeback several years ago or even today as a PhD student and wife and mother. Maybe I wouldn't be as committed to constantly having to prove myself every day. It's an inspiring conversation because it shows how sport can teach us over time about the value of resiliency and bouncing back after any setback. So without further ado, here's Jesse Jansen. because I think most people know the highlights, which is what we would put on the resume, what we, what is out there on the Wikipedias and, and you know, the, the general uh, web pages. But what is what are some of the things that people do not know about you or do not ask about you, especially as it relates to just your athletic journey and even your personal journey? Um. My athletic journey and personal journey, they don't know. I mean, um, I mean, a lot of what I spent time on since I since we I left the phone, my brother-in-law and my dad passed, uh, I dedicate a lot to philanthropy. So I am uh, one of the chairman of the board for Beat the Streets, which is a uh, national organization with 11 cities now. So I think people kind of know that's a big piece of what I'm doing in the wrestling community. But, um, you know, we feel the lessons that we've learned as wrestlers through sport you know, parallel life. And uh, for me to get access to a Harvard education, uh, you know, without a question, uh, without wrestling, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. So mm-hmm. I want to give that opportunity to our kids, uh, our boys and girls in all of our 12 cities now uh, with Beat the Streets. Um, you know, we supply mentorship and internships, uh, SAT prep, uh, sports training, coaching, um, all sorts of things. Uh, and I think that, you know, we've seen uh, over the past 15 years, you know, real progress uh, with, you know, getting college education, some Ivy League graduates, you know, kids coming from, you know, pretty much nothing in low income, broken families to getting, you know, becoming doctors, you know, from Brown University and Cornell. So I think we're making progress. It's always hard with nonprofits because the day to day, you don't always see the results that you want. But, uh, yeah. you know, I think that we're impacting lives and uh, sports can do that. So That's awesome. Well, it sounds like over the past several years, you've kind of taking a, a turn towards really trying to give back or have an impact or make an impact with the community. I know there's something of upwards of maybe 4,000 athletes within the NYC area that Beat the Streets supports. Is it around that or so? Yeah, it's probably around that, like 3,000 probably boys and girls. And then mm-hmm. nationally, it's near 10,000 now. So 
Um, That's awesome. Yeah, and we want to scale. We want to add, you know, three more cities in the next year uh, and then use National as a platform to really get big corporate sponsors. You know, we're in talks now to subsidize coaching salaries nationwide, and, uh, and it could be exciting. You know? Yeah, that's really great. Well, on the surface, you know, oftentimes uh, when when I'm talking to to younger students or just athletes, they I think on the surface they look at my transition and and they seem it seems as though it was seamless. But as people have told, I've told my story, you know, many times. But on the surface, I think it looked like it was um, very efficient and and I did well. But beneath the surface, there were a lot of things going on, especially emotionally, just things that I did not resolve for many, many, many years. But what what was your just transition from sport like in leaving wrestling, especially after what happened at the 2008 Olympic trials? Yeah, you know, it was really hard. And the older I get, the more I can express it. Uh, at the time, I was frustrated, angry, depressed, and, um, you know, knew I needed to make money and, and transition to the next thing. The next thing I thought was, and it turns out it was that, which was to go into financing. But it was a real struggle to get a job in 2008. I mean, I was two months in my older sister's basement <laughs> interviewing and felt, uh, you know, pretty down in the dumps, um, a loss of identity. For so long, uh, whether I liked it or not, I was the wrestler. I was the wrestler at Harvard. Oh, I was the guy that was like, you know, making, breaking some records at Harvard and kind of changing things. And I was from a small school on the island that, you know, wrestling was okay, but it wasn't like a major powerhouse before like we came through. And um, so that was part of my identity. And I didn't realize how big a piece of it was because I never considered myself a wrestler. I said, you know, sports is a vehicle for life, but it can't be your entire identity. Um, and then kind of when it was taken from me, I was like, well, what am I going to do with all this time? <laughs> I used to train you know, six hours a day and uh, get that gratification and that positive reinforcement through sport, which was, you know, you go to coaching every day, uh, you go to practice every day and your coaches are, you know, good job or this or that, or you have a benchmark. All right. I compete this weekend. I know where I stand. I either won or lost. And then when, and when that kind of gets taken from you, um, you lose purpose and you lose identity. Yeah. Well said. I connect with everything. I connect with absolutely everything that you that you just said. And I don't know if you've had some time to to think about it a little bit more, but you're right. I think that the further we get from any sort of experience, whether whether that's retirement or transition away from sport or college, whatever it is, the further we get away from anything, the more uh, we're able to articulate and process our thoughts and emotions and feelings about it. Mm-hmm. But have you thought about what, contributed to the challenges that you experienced in leaving sport as in what um what made you really really identify with sport in the sense that you had a salient athletic identity have you given it any thought um hmm, why i identified that way or why i enjoyed that or um yeah and then and why was it why was your athletic identity and, and your association with sports so strong I think what happens is to be great at anything, you have to be a little obsessive compulsive. Uh, you have to just be obsessed with whatever you're working on. And I think that it's this addictive personality that uh, can be good or bad. Uh, when you're, you see a lot of addicts that, you know, end up being triathletes and different things because they have to find healthy addictions. And I think with wrestling in all sports, but particularly wrestling, 
you'll see a lot of guys that just become obsessed. It's like a hurt so good. It's really embarrassing to lose. You're out there in like this unitard, okay? You're alone. It's one-on-one -on -one, and you're getting beat up. I know you're not punching each other, but it's just controlled fight. And it's like almost more demeaning. And guess what? In wrestling, the better guy almost always wins. In a fight, they usually win, but a lot of, you can get caught. You know, anyone has a puncher's chance. In wrestling, it's like, it's just controlled smothering fight. And it's just like, it's hard. It takes a lot out of you. So the losses hurt so much that you never want to feel that way. So you get addicted to it. And yeah, you love the art form. It's really creative. It's, um, there's no two ways. Uh, I mean, there's no one way to do anything and every body style is uh, different and they're more predisposed to being better at different techniques. There's so many different techniques to score. Um, you know, as much as it's just like macho kind of, you know, first Olympic sport gladiator thing, it's really creative. Um, so I think it's almost like chess where people just want to constantly learn. So like you're expanding your mind and body. It's a, a race to perfection. It's really, um, you know, to chase to be perfect out there. And, um, you know, it's not untrue of other sports, but for wrestling, it, you know, I don't know, maybe it's, um, enhances it more in that way. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I said, uh, you know, the transition was hard, um, because still to this day, I didn't leave my shoes in the mat in wrestling, you take your shoes off, you put them down the center of the mat and you kind of have your retirement ceremony. You know, I ended on a note that wasn't ideal. You know, you want to go out. You never go out perfectly. You want to go out on a win. It's not going to be Derek Cheaters. You know, he hits the final run in and then walks off or hits the home run on his 3,000 hit. Like, not everyone's that lucky. Um, but I didn't retire because I was too old and not physically able to do it. I retired in my late 20s because I wanted to make money. I was mentally exhausted, and I just couldn't do it anymore. I knew that another four-year commitment would be, you know, living on a – a, you know, a coach's salary, which is like rubbing two nickels together, training, you know, four hours a day, traveling a lot, but internationally to, you know, all these, you know, Eastern Black Europe and all these places in Turkey and Asia and different places to compete against all the wrestling countries. And, you know, I kind of got the taste of, uh, you know, wealth and a better life through being, seeing people in finance and mm -hmm. going to Harvard and seeing how people, you know, were living their lives. And the best thing for a fighter or a wrestler is to be a monk, is to not have tunnel vision and not be exposed to those things. You know, I think in Rocky, Mickey said, the worst thing happened to you as a fighter, you got civilized. And when a fighter, mm -hmm. like, whether it's just seeing what's out there or getting, you know, getting more money or having an easier lifestyle, you, know, you need to be constantly surrounded by guys that are hungry. Uh, and just fighting and want it. And, you know, I think at that point I was like, yeah, I still could probably make another run at it, maybe another world championship or Olympics. But, you know, that's another four years to postpone being a grown up. Another four years where other people are going to be ahead of me when I go into the, uh, you know, Wall Street world and those type of things. So it's bittersweet because I don't know. If I was going to get paid to compete, I would have kept competing. And um, that's changed in our sport for the better, which is really great. A lot more money has come into USA Wrestling. A lot more money has got come in with sponsors and internationally. So we're getting a lot of our great athletes compete for much longer because of that. And uh, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, there's so many different things to unpack there. You know, the fact that when you say that you kind of have to be a monk and, and take out all the other distractions, it's also something that I hear from um, football players as well. I think it's also just about the culture in the sense of, um, I'm trying to remember who I was, who I was talking to recently, but in, in anticipation of being drafted, 
um, you know, actually I was talking to Doug Glanville, baseball player, former MLB uh, baseball player who went to Penn Ivy league graduate. And, and some of the scouts were looking at him and were concerned about his academic endeavors and ambitions because they were, they were worried that he wasn't focused on baseball. And some of those other things, some of the other people that I've interviewed, Robert Smith, former NFL player as well, he was pre-med at Ohio mm-hmm. State. And he got a lot of pressure from the coaching staff. You know, I'd be like, why, why are you going to lab? Like, I need you to be here for three practices. Like, you, I, I can't have you focus on all these other things. But that's the culture. But it sounds like, you know, with wrestling, the way you're describing it, it is, it is all an over-consuming in the sense of like, the chess-like aspect, the creativity. It's almost like, unlike other sports, this one, it has to be all of you and not just the athletic side of you. It's like the person, the the cognitive side of you. I don't know, I'm just processing some of the things. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. Um, obviously, each sport has its own requirement for you know time and skill and how you develop and become great, right? Great, great athletes are usually great across the board, right? They, they share similar um, characteristics, I guess. But wrestling, because it has the fight aspect, the preparation, the weight loss and dieting and management, it's, uh, it's hard. It's hard to go to bed hungry and thirsty all the time and, you know, focus on, you know, midterms and finals and getting that paper in and balancing all that. So it's definitely an extra element, especially with that weight management. Um, and then, yeah, it's, there's so many dimensions to it. Um, and you have to feel perfect. There's no other team to kind of rely on. You are a tennis player, so you get the individuality and like know that that's a big, a big part of you know accountability. And it's just you out there. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that you know wrestling does take up a lot of time uh, physically, but also mentally as well. Do you think some sports are more transformative than other sports, in the sense of? You know, I just asked, I I just did another interview and I asked the athlete, who would you be had you not played sport or football? And the answer was, yeah, you know, I think I'd kind of be maybe the same. Maybe I would have done this. But my response in having participated in an individual sport, one that can be very, very consuming, was I think I would have been totally different. So do you think that some sports are more transformative? Than, than others? Maybe. Um, my kindergarten teacher said I was either going to be in jail or the president. And that was before I started wrestling. So there's still hope for what? either one of those. There's, there's still hope. There's still hope for either one of those outcomes. Um, I'd like That's to a think, large spectrum. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. My mom's like, I don't know how to take that. I don't know what's going to happen here. Um, maybe an R&B singer. That'd be great. Um, no. <laughs> Well, I think your point is, is that like for me, uh, sports, um, I don't know. I don't know where I, I would have been. I think I could have gotten in trouble. I think sports, as far as the discipline, the cliche kind of sports analogies that everyone used, like they, it, the problem is, is they're true, right? Like for wrestling, you know, I talked about that obsessiveness and it was like a healthy obsession, you know? So like, I think that it gave me direction, it gave me purpose, it gave me access to a great college that I otherwise would have not. I got you know, good grades and worked hard, but being well-rounded is crucial to go to those universities, as you know. So I think, um, I don't know. I think sports was, 
inside of me. So if it wasn't wrestling, maybe it would have focused more on baseball. I grew up doing all sorts of sports. And um, my dad had a real passion for wrestling and was my coach when I was younger. So I think it was like, you know, when your parents introduce and expose you to, and then if it catches fire, that's kind of what you do a lot of times. Or a mentor, mm-hmm. someone that fills that gap uh, for you. Um, but I do think... You know, part of our mission at Beat the Streets is kind of maybe along your questioning and your point. It's like to give kids, you know, guidance, purpose, um, you know, extracurriculars, uh, things that can parallel life and teach them lessons, but also keep them busy. Because free time is uh, is dangerous for anyone. I think the biggest yeah. thing is to stay busy, have purpose, have hobbies you care a lot about, and um, you know, keep chasing goals. So I think mm-hmm. sports check a lot of those boxes, at least when you're young. Uh, and then as you get older and you transition, you know, it's like we talked about, it's hard, but you have to transition into something that, you know, you want to, you want to do for the rest of your life. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the, and, and the part about just the, the earlier childhood part, beginning of relationship with sport and, you know, for me, the thing that I'm thinking about right now is if the athlete gravitates towards sport that fits their personality, mm-hmm. or if it's just influenced by their environment because i knew you played you come from a family of four kids right Is it four uh, kids five counting so it's like, uh, okay, two boys five. two boys and three girls okay so so large family a lot of a lot of action going on and and all of you guys played multiple sports i know soccer baseball for you and and it wasn't until ninth grade that you decided that you really start focusing on wrestling solely yeah, what happened was it was taking up so much time and my parents were so invested and so kind and so uh, supportive that, you know, I'd have baseball Wednesday, soccer Thursday, wrestling every day, and then weekends. It's like they just couldn't keep up with five kids. So it was like, and then everything got specialized too, right? So it was like, if you want a college degree as a college scholarship, you kind of had to specialize at some point. Usually there are some amazing athletes that do multiple, but wrestling was year round nonstop. So in ninth grade, I had, let's say, 35 matches for high school, but then I had 100 and something matches in the offseason. So I had, you know, over 3x the matches in the offseason. So it was like really busy even when I wasn't, wow. uh, wasn't in my high school season. Uh, so it didn't leave a lot of time to play baseball or soccer and those things. Um, though those sports are a lot more fun, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> why do you say, why do you think they're more fun? Well, I do love wrestling. Just more laid, it laid back. Well, it's just kind of nice to get outside of a gymnasium and be outside swinging the bat. Uh, baseball, <laughs> I love because the juxtaposition between wrestling and baseball. There's, you know, there's it's a team sport versus individual. You don't have to make yeah. weight. It's really intense for certain plays. I played shortstop and pitched, and when you're up at the plate, it's intense. When you're pitching, you're making a play, but then you had time where you could try to be social. It was more of a more of a social aspect. So uh, yeah. it was a nice it was a nice mix to play both. So. Hmm. And, and in ninth grade, did you just, you felt like you were better in wrestling? Did you, or did you genuinely like it more than all the other sports? How did you make your choice? I, yeah, definitely better. I was just doing it a lot more anyway, since I was younger, I did those other sports, but almost like casually, but I was pretty good. Um, so I think also in New York state, you can wrestle high school in middle school for all sports. So it's like this weird rule if you pass this like physical fitness test and maturity test. So I was already competing in high school in seventh and eighth grade in wrestling, um, but I was still playing baseball and soccer, uh, you know, kind of to balance it all out. And I, I really liked those sports and had fun doing it. Uh, but then when high school started, it was just, I think, too much scheduling lines. Plus, I wanted to make sure I was doing well academically. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, I had a mentor that actually was a coach, volunteer coach. One of the few people that got to Harvard uh, from my high school, but he was older and he was friends with my father. And he, he was great because he was like my academic, he was my coach, academic mentor and a good friend. And uh, he would always check in. My parents were kind of easygoing about the academics. They were just, you know, we didn't have a legacy of like Ivy League colleges and like that they didn't really know. Maybe their kids could go those places, maybe they couldn't. But it was just like, you know, work as hard as you can is kind of the mantra. And this guy was like, oh, how'd you do on your paper? How'd you do on your, your math test? Or are you taking AP courses, the advanced courses? Are you doing this? Mm. And like, without him, was, I would have had no chance for sure. He was like, you know, a really good uh, mentor and uh, sounding board for all those things. That is, that is so fascinating. I remember you uh, hearing you in another interview and you mentioned that your mom didn't go to college. Is that correct? And and then um, you and your brother went to Harvard. I think your sister, didn't your sister go to Princeton as well? Yeah, she played field hockey at Princeton. Uh, so so your, your family did not not do well. Like you guys don't <laughs> know how to fail. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, like I said, being well-rounded in sports and then, you know, once you go through the process, you know, you, have good information information is is key, is key. uh yeah. you know good support system uh really good mentors and um you know it's, it makes it all possible so well as as a mother of two sons uh i literally i'm, I'm like oh, i want to want to bring your parents on here <laughs> i want to bring your mom on here to get some parenting advice because they clearly yeah. obviously do something really really well so you go off to Harvard, you do obviously extremely well, 2004 NCAA title, um, you accrue all these accolades and accomplishments. So what was the goal when, when you graduated in 2004? Was to train until 2008 to make uh, the Olympic team and then uh, hopefully win gold. I mean, there was always gold or nothing for the most part, but uh, you have to win the Olympic trials to get there. Um, so what I was doing is I was coaching, I was splitting time training at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, excuse me, and um, I started working for a, a real estate company that um, did some real estate development and uh, managed a few buildings that they had leased out. And I was kind of like, you know, man managing the, uh, the leases and different things and going door to door and doing different things for them. Um, and I did it for a little while, but it just was like, not ideal for training so I was traveling so much so I kind of felt bad because I really really wasn't there that often so then I just focused pretty much full-time training and coaching so I was a volunteer assistant at Harvard for those years which was neat because my brother was on the team for uh, at least one or two years I overlapped with him as a coach which was cool wow for, yeah I guess a couple yeah yeah like one or two I guess uh, which is great he probably hated it because I would you know I'm smothering him. <laughs> You know, because it's always, you know, you always want him to do better than yourself. And you always like, you know, you're like, a, I was seven years older. So it's like a brother, but parents, but uncle and coach. So. <laughs> and my dad was a lot better at handling uh, and the coaching son relationship than I was the coaching brother relationship. He was just so patient and a really positive guy. So, yeah. The lessons wow. I have a feeling that that 2004, you kind of mentioned it when we were doing the rapid fire, but the 2004 to 2008 period was, uh, it seemed like there was a lot of stuff going on. And that's such a critical period, right? I think you, you leave and you graduate college. So this is a time when when the general population, the civilian world, um, yeah. non-athletes, enters the workplace. But you are also, as an Olympic athlete, have two full-time jobs, whatever you're doing vocationally, but then also right. you're training around the clock. So what was this period like for you? 
it was a little bit of a transition. When things were going well, it was great. I was training all the time. I had enough money to get by. I had a sponsorship with ASICs. I had a sponsorship with the New York Athletic Club that sponsored athletes for their travel and tournament fees, singlets and gear. Um, and then I had a non, like a 501c3 uh, set up to take training donations, which a lot of the athletes did at that time. We weren't getting paid uh, the way the athletes are now with the sponsors and the social media. You know, there was uh, friends of mine who were wealthy wrestlers in finance that started this thing called the Gold Medal Fund. So if you won, if you were first, second, or third in the Worlds or Olympics, you got a scaled like prize money, which was a big chunk. I think for the Worlds, it's 100K for gold. Then it maybe goes 50, 25. For the Olympics, it was 200, 250,000. Then it scales maybe 175 or something for medals. Uh, so they kept people in the sport a, a lot more because of those things. And for us, for me, the transition was, you know, it was hard. You had more free time because you weren't in class all the time. You were training, but, uh, you know, the, you didn't compete as much as you did in college. For international competition, you'd have like five big tournaments a year and then a couple like in between. But you really didn't compete all the time. So you're really just training, um, you know, coaching and just trying to get by. Um, and then I got injured. I won that world title in 2005 and then I was wakeboarding, which is, you know, like my favorite hobby. Um, I fell and then I t broke a bone in my foot and tore a ligament. Um, and I, you know, when it happened, I was like, ah, it bubbled up and there was, there was, my foot was collapsing, like the arch of my foot was collapsing. So I was like, ah, something's definitely wrong. So I went to get an x-ray and they were like, the first person I got an x-ray from locally on Long Island said, oh, I think it's this thing called Liz Frank fracture, which is actually a ligament tear. And they have to go in and they have to put two pins in between your metatarsals and then like reconstruct the arch a little bit of your foot. Otherwise, it never really heals. You don't run the same. You can't spring off that foot really. So I was like mad. She was like, at that time, no one knew anything about this injury. It wasn't as common or it was misdiagnosed a lot. Mm. So she told me, well, you'll never compete again. Your career is over. You're not going to go to the Olympics. And like any athlete, you're like, that's stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. Like she's the doctor, right? So I'm like, I'm going to do whatever. So I kind of went home and tried and said, well, this is true. Like we need more opinions. Like this can't be the case. Like my foot's not that bad. Like it's there. It did fall off. Um, so I then went to the guy that did the, was like the orthopedist for the Jets at the time. But he really focused on knees. I think he was like more knees, elbows, shoulders guy. And he thought it was just a fracture in my metatarsal because there was probably a broken bone there as well as the ligament tear. So he just treated me with a walking boot for like three months. And he's like, all right, you're good to go. And so that was all the news I needed to hear. I was excited. I was like, all right, great. I'm going to be back. Now, you know, we're back on course. Then like three months later, nothing healed, nothing improved. I still couldn't run on it. I couldn't jump on it. It just wasn't working. I was like, something's up with this thing. So then I went to get another opinion in Boston. And the guy said, it did an x-ray. He's like, yeah, of course, you have a Liz Frank break. I can see it right in the x-ray. I said, these things you don't need an MRI for, a CAT scan. Like, it's right in the x-ray. You can see the way it's laying. I said, you need surgery immediately to fix this thing. Otherwise, you just can't fix it. <sighs> so, that, so then I dove even deeper, and I was like, forget it. I'm getting the right guy now. I just you know, got on the internet and did all the research I could find on this injury and found that Ty Law and Terrell Owens used the guy in Baltimore while they were like at peak NFL. And they were like, obviously, they're going to go to the best guys. That's what I assumed at that time. So I emailed this guy. I gave him like this, you know, like a uh, sob story about my Olympic career is over. I need you, blah, blah, blah. So he got me in right away and he fixed it. Uh, but this took like a year and a half, almost two years off of training to figure this all out. Wow. Uh, by, the by the time I was really back in action, it was like 2007. 
Um, so, so it did a number of things to me. I had so I never had an injury that took me out of competing for that long. So then it really psychologically messed with me. I healed up, and it healed up. His foot feels great. The guy did a wonderful job. But I got really heavy because all I could do is lift the upper body, couldn't run, couldn't do all these things. So my upper body got big, and I was like 180 pounds. I wrestled 145, which is feasible, but you know, got me kind of out of making weight, and, and I had to shrink my body down. So that was a challenge. I also had a lot of free time to like think about life, which is the worst thing you could do as an athlete. <laughs> I think. I think you need yes, to be busy. I agree. Busy, busy. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Yeah, because you're like you know, existential questions. What does this mean? Blah blah blah. Yes. What do I want to do with my life? How do I want to make money? You know, it's a big world out there. Space is big. Like, is wrestling that important? And like that, as soon as you have those conversations with yourself, you are halfway done. Um, but I still muttered through. Those are just kind of back and forth, you know, internal thoughts that you kind of, kind of push down and get out. Um, and then I start training again. But I never really got back in rhythm, which was uh, it was frustrating. I, I got back my first tournament back. I beat the guy that was currently ranked number one for the US. US. But then I wasn't in great conditioning. I couldn't get my full conditioning back. So it was like my first tournament, and you need reps. It's like getting ring rust as a boxer or a UFC fighter or a tennis. If you don't play it, if you practice tennis all the time, but you're not competing. It's not quite the same. I don't think. Right. Um, you know, it's your, your your awareness on the court or your awareness on the mat or just like these intangible things you don't realize the anxiety of competing versus the comfort being comfortable in practice like there's major differences to that and you get tired a lot faster even if you're in great shape so i had a big win but then i lost twice in that tournament on the wrestle backs. i was like all right well it's first back i'm working the king stuff but i just struggled so much to get down the to weight too and when i would get down the weight i would feel like a bear in the first period and I would just dive because I wasn't getting the nutrition in. I was crash dieting, which was common for this because we weighed in the night before. But I just wasn't really getting in rhythm and feeling good. So I made the last chance qualifier because I missed weight, which is this regional qualifier to go to the Olympic trials. So I missed weight. I got down to 146 and the weight's 145. And I was like, oh, no. So then I started. Then I called the, the head of USA Wrestling or whoever it was, the coach. And I was like, if I qualify at the weight above, can I wrestle 145 at the Olympic trials, the 66 kilograms weight, the lower weight? He said, yeah, mm -hmm. you can. As long as you qualify, you're not going to get any, you're not going to get a very good seed, but you'll, you'll get in the bracket. I was like, great. So I just started stuffing my face to get big enough to wrestle the guys that are 163 pounds, 74 oh kilos, gosh. which is a whole different body frame. These are big guys coming from some 200 pounds, 190. They're big, tall, wide, big guys. So you know, I had like eight matches in a day after being down weight, and then I won. So I qualified, but it was like gritty and just like desperate, and I got through it. Um, but it wasn't ideal for peaking, you know, for the Olympic trials. Um, so then, you know, I got ready for the Olympic trials, and then I actually had E. coli, which made me make weight really easy. <laughs> I got really wow. sick with like a stomach bacteria infection, I guess. And um, it was about a month before the trials, so I was really light, which I had no problem making weight, but I lost a lot of power. So, like, after the weigh-ins, you know, usually you go from 145 to about 170, you know? Most guys, when they're actually competing, they're much bigger than the weight you made, you know, because you put the hydration back in your system and you eat. Mm -hmm. um, so I certainly, no excuse, because on my best day, that was certainly not guaranteed, and I wasn't the, wouldn't have been the number one seed that year. But it certainly didn't help. Um, I had lost to a guy that I had, you know, the last three matches we wrestled, I won. Um, and... Uh, and then, uh, you know, that was it. It's pretty much one and done. You know, you don't, and only the top guy goes. Um, so it was a little bittersweet and frustrating, but, you know, a ton of 
travel and life experience during that time as well. I did compete internationally for a while. You know, you know, you got a little adversity you know, thrown at you. Yeah, you learn how to cope with that. Uh, it makes you stronger. And uh, also, I have something to prove in my career as well, you know, because of that. Sometimes wrestlers who are Olympic champions and world champions and try to transition to something else, you don't have the same, like, uh, drive. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, I already did everything I can ever do. Like, my life, I was peaked at 25 or 30 years old. And you're like, well, what's next? Um, and sometimes that happens. So now I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder to chase other things, which uh, I think could be a good thing. I've never thought about it that way. And I think that's such a fantastic perspective in the sense of like having that chip on your shoulder, maybe because in the earlier chapter, you just hadn't accomplished all the things that you would accomplish. And maybe that might explain my continuing chip on my shoulder (laughs) after not having closed out, you know, my athletic career in the way that I, that I had hoped. And, you know, so, um, not having made the Olympics and then do you remember your last match? Not in great detail. Uh, maybe it's a, a block or PTSD. I don't remember much about the match at all, honestly. I don't know the score. I don't even know how I was scored on or taken down. I wonder why that is, because I think I remember eh, getting old. So maybe not all of them. I'm trying to think of other losses that like stink. I certainly remember most of the scores and losses. You know, your wins you don't always remember. You remember the big ones, but like it's the, really the losses that, that really you don't forget. But that one, yeah. I don't, uh, I remember not feeling well. I remember for the first time, because one of the assets I had was it's pretty strong. And most people felt that I was strong. And uh, I felt certainly weaker than him, which is the first time I've had that feeling ever. Uh, so what's your, yeah, sorry. Uh, so what's your last wrestling memory? Like of you competing? What's, what's the last thing that you remember? I mean, I remember that. I just don't remember the specifics of the match. You know? mm. Like, I, I mean, mm-hmm. that was the last, that was the last time I competed. So. Yeah, I remember going to that tournament in Iowa City, I believe. And uh, yeah, it's not an amazing memory. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then what's your last memory of knowing I'm done? Do you remember that moment? I was exhausted mentally, physically there, so I knew I was done for a while. I, you know, I, to this day, I still flirt with like fighting or doing something. Like I can't let it go. Like any good wrestler that doesn't feel like uh, fulfilled, never really wants to let it go. I train like an animal just because of that. <laughs> like I'm like, I'm always ready. So, but to your point, it was probably that match. I had broken my nose bad and had my septum was torn apart. So I had that fixed. I was like, ah, if I'm going to get this nose fixed, I'm probably not going to do a combat sport anymore because I want to feel like breaking it again. Um, so like that was like a nail in the coffin as well. I was like, yeah. I think I'm done wrestling now because I was going to wait. I was like, all right, I'm going to get my, so I can breathe. So I couldn't breathe out of my nose when I slept because it was like completely broken this way and this way. So mm-hmm. my septum, yeah, it was like a mess. So mm-hmm. I was like, all right, when I'm done competing, I'll finally get it fixed. Uh, so that was like the other thing that solidified. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do this thing anymore. Um, so world trials and then that. I mean, Olympic, got, tri- Olympic trials. Olympic trials. And have you gotten it fixed? I assume you got it fixed. Yeah, it, it was okay. okay. Yeah, I got, I mean, that was 2008. That's, that's what I mean. Okay. I got it fixed like oh, right okay. after. I was okay. like, all right, if I'm going to do this, then I'm probably not going to compete anymore. So I was like, yeah, let me just fix okay. this thing. So that was okay. kind of like when I made the decision, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to compete anymore. You know, you kind of mentioned that psychologically, that that period, um, it kind of threw you for a loop. But I think that for most athletes, psychologically, mentally, emotionally, cognitively, fill in the blank, whatever. I think it's a, it's a journey. Uh, for me, um, 
it, it was, I mean, I mean, I, I think it took me 10 years to make the transition. I mean, it's, it's like moving this massive yeah. Titanic cruise ship. And once you think you're over, then this other layer comes up and you're like, wow, I thought that was fixed. I thought that was resolved. You know, I, I was just talk, talking to another athlete uh, before this. And I said, you know, how long did your transition take? And Seabuck, uh, I think is, I don't know, mid fifties. I was like, still going, Prem, still, still going. Yeah. So from a psychological perspective, what was your experience? during the earlier parts of that transition and leaving wrestling, recognizing like, this is it. It was really hard. I tried to kind of come back or flirt with the idea of coming back a lot. And, uh, I'm not quite over sports, you know, I'm trying to stay in shape. Who knows? Maybe there's an old man sport I could do. If you find one, send it my way so I can compete at the world level. Send me some, maybe spike ball. Can I be a spike ball champion? I feel like you're uh, better than Spike. I feel like you're better than Spike Fall. <laughs> I mean, no. uh, I'm, I'm teasing. I mean, I'm, I'm half joking. But um, the tra- to his point, I agree. The transitions, um, it's ongoing, you know, because you're never really satisfied. There's no perfect time to retire. It's why you see Michael Jordan came back, you know, a bunch of times, you know, right? And he's went to baseball, came back to play for the Wizards, was like a player owner. Um, no one really wants to let go. You know, I think Tom Brady will be the only one to play till he's 80. I don't know that guy. I don't know how he's doing it, but uh, it's really hard. So, you know, I'd be lying if I said, oh, it's amazing. I'm done with that. I don't think about it. I do. Every athlete has those dreams. You wake up sweating, you know, like, oh, I was in the middle of a match or a fight or something. You know, I Mm -hmm. think about doing MMA because like you can, you don't compete that much. You only train a little bit. It's not fun because you get hit hard, but you you know, we wrestled every weekend and they wait every weekend. It's tough because you get a punch and kick, but you do it like once a year. They're all MMA, Bellator, UFC, PFL, and um, the wrestling background is like huge asset. It's really big. Uh, it it just, is. I was just about to say, if you're going to pick a sport, don't pick spike ball. You that would be an easy transition into <laughs> MMA. So yeah. that that could be an an option. Uh, you know, you kind of mentioned. I think earlier you said something. I'm going to paraphrase here. Hopefully, I'm not missing the mark. But you mentioned something about not really saying goodbye, or or have you been able to say goodbye to wrestling at all? Yeah, I mean, goodbye as far as an athlete, pretty much. I don't have any aspirations to uh, compete at wrestling because I just can't. There's no way I could, you know, at, at 40, 41, uh, you know, this coming year, you know, it's just not reasonable. <laughs> so it's gone. Yeah. In the ways that, and, and I ask that in, um, in a way that I have no doubt that you've already said goodbye. But uh, one thing that I learned during my second year in, in the PhD program and um, my clinical supervisor, you know, I was uh, terminating with a bunch of my clients and I was really, really upset. It was sad. You know, I had roughly 12, 12 to 15 clients and it was sad for me. And she kind of mentioned, well, how do you process other transitions? How do you process other goodbyes? And she said, because oftentimes, however you experience one transition and one goodbye is going to probably mimic your responses to other transitions and to other goodbyes. And I was like, wow, that's really fascinating. I hadn't really thought about that. And so that makes me think about your experience of how do you say goodbye and how do you oftentimes, you know, transition? And I'll share my experience of, you know, with tennis, I was, I was always awful at goodbyes. It's just uncomfortable. There's like this permanence to it. I kind of avoided it. And because I didn't specifically and explicitly say goodbye, 
it remained in my life and manifested itself into this eating disorder and all these other and relational issues, all these things for 10 plus years. And by the time I was in my early thirties today at 41, but in my early thirties, I was like, do something's wrong. Like I can't keep doing this. So I went and got therapy. And so just offering some of that context of today, now I, I like when I'm saying goodbye to something or someone or something of myself, I make it a point, you know, to write a letter. My therapist has had me like specifically write a letter, write a letter, ESPN, write a letter, my broadcasting career, whatever it is to like really say goodbye in my own words. And so I kind of set that tone of, you know, in what ways have you been able to say goodbye in in any of those fashions to wrestling? Are you writing the letter to yourself as like a closure or are you writing it to the people, the employers or the team or the coach? Yeah. So when I wrote that letter to tennis and when I wrote that letter to ESPN, I, I talked to it as if it's a person because that's what sports is. It's literally like a relationship, right? You know, kind of people kind of say like, this is a relationship since I've had, since I was like four or five years old. And so when I was writing that letter to tennis, yeah, you know, <clears throat> and we've seen those retirement letters, right? That, that, athletes often often post on their social media accounts. And so for me, it was like, you know, just kind of expressing my gratitude. I wouldn't be where I am with without you, but also, you know, you took me through some of my biggest pains, my some of my biggest losses. I was I was upset that, you know, this didn't end the way we had hoped. I feel like you're breaking up with me. And so there's just like this dialogue and talking to the game as if it is a person, because it is, it's a relationship, right? Right. Well, I think that sounds healthy and sounds like good for closure. I think I'm probably an avoidance uh, love language guy, maybe. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> maybe I avoid it because I, I certainly haven't gone through that exercise, really. No. Um, yeah. Maybe because I like the other person you interviewed that he's like, I'm still working through that transition, you know, type of thing. Maybe yeah. because it's, uh, it's like a wound that's close, probably scarred, but it's still kind of there. So. Uh, yeah, maybe it's good. I mean, otherwise, I'd probably be fat and lazy because I'm still just holding out. You know, I'm still staying in shape, still staying <laughs> ready to go. Um, well, I have, uh, you know, in in the little that I know of you, but just in this hour, I would imagine that you could still be in shape and still have that chip on that shoulder. You seem like somebody who has a lot of fuel in the tank, like a huge drive that's just greater than the general population, but also like they don't have to be like binary or mutually exclusive, like you'd have all those things. And then also, if you wanted to also say goodbye to to wrestling. Yeah, Yeah, it's probably be a healthy exercise to do. I don't know if I've done it in that way. I think I know I have said goodbye to the sport, you know? I mean, like I'm so involved, it's hard because I'm always around it with helping Harvard with uh, beat the street scaling like it's doing and then staying involved with friends and family members and things like that. So, you know, it's always going to be a big part of my life. It's just one of those things you, you never get away from it, even if uh, you really wanted to. But yeah, I, um, yeah, I mean, the competitive aspect of it, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's helpful to really like you know, put a nail in that coffin to end it. But like, I am at peace and I'm very confident that, uh, you know, I'm not competing anymore. I've had plenty of opportunities to compete in open tournaments or old man tournaments or even try to make comebacks. And, you know, I entertained it in 2012 a little bit. Uh, I was working and I was training at night and I was like, ah, this isn't, you got to really commit. This this isn't like uh, the executive training program where you can just compete with the best in the world, you know, in Russia and Iran and Cuba and, um, you know, 
Turkey and the United States and not do it full time. Um, mm -hmm. So, but you know, you still compete with people and you're like, oh, I can still do it. So, but I'm past that. I don't really have, I don't really have any regrets. It's unfortunate because it's one of those things where, you know, when you train for the Olympics, you have a ton of life lessons and they're important. But really, if you're going to sacrifice four years of your life, you know, it's better to get that medal. <laughs> it's always better to get that medal. Um, yeah. Just because, you know, you put that time and you want to cash out. So. Yeah. So then what is your medal today? What's your North Star? What I'm chasing for goals? Mm -hmm. um, well, the next two months, it sounds like conversations the past week, I'm going to raise money for a fund that's going to invest in Web3 and be kind of venture-based, but also have uh, a portion that could trade uh, the token economy, Bitcoin, Ethereum. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but... Uh, I'm not yeah. very... I, I'm one of those people that I need the Bitcoin dump for dummies 101. I know yeah. nothing about it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know... That will feed, you know, my financial goals and, and building a fund and, and hopefully growing a business and maybe selling a business or, or making money for people. Um, and the other thing is I want to contribute uh, to the arts. Uh, I want to write and potentially direct a film I'm proud of. So in the past 10 years, my brother and I have put a lot of time in. We've seen every independent film project you could ever imagine, you know, thousands of projects. We've written three screenplays. We've had every meeting with every person you could imagine. We've worked on, we've worked as stunt chore choreographers, stunt actors, actors, producers, uh, you know, everything up and down the line. So I think it's egotistical to think that I could be a good writer, but uh, it's kind of a beautiful thing to have a legacy of a piece of art that you just send out to the universe, get judged, if people like it or not. Uh, I like, yeah, I think that's an interesting uh, kind of thing. Whether it's music or film, it relates to people in different ways. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, no legacies forever. Uh, unless maybe you invent the wheel or something, but uh, you know, you know what I mean. Like, especially you have like, you know, you're a president or like, you know, sports legacies they age out and die. There's no one. There's a new person who's stronger, faster, better. But you know, some movies will last 100 years, 200 years, and they'll kind of motivate people or you know, touch people in different ways. Uh, so I think that's beautiful and something I am chasing. Yeah, a little bit. That's awesome. Yeah, your uh, social account with your brother is hilarious. You guys seem to have a lot of a lot of fun together. Um, and it's so interesting to think about your creativity in sport and in wrestling and how that might be transferring over into some of the work that you're doing. And so the art that you're creating now, while it was on the map before, seems to be kind of manifesting in different ways. Yeah, I think wrestlers are creative. I think that, um, you, know, you see a lot of guys act, go into acting. You know, Tom Cruise was a high school wrestler, and Mark Ruffalo is a, a wrestler, and um, Chris Pratt. And, like, you know, there's a lot of people that uh, grew up in the sport, and I think that there's a lot of personalities. It's also being comfortable in front of people, bearing it all, you know? It's kind of like, you know, that's performance. Uh, and when you're on stage alone, whether it's theater or even in film or TV, a lot of times you have to deliver, some, you know, it's kind of out there alone you're with scene partners but it's really individualized when you're building mm -hmm. a character a lot of it's based on life experience and different things so yeah i think that's one thing people don't realize about uh, the com the combative arts um it's really creative and it's and for that reason it makes for really interesting personalities i think and i think life lessons are so deeply interwoven into martial arts and the combative sports. And so what are some of the few lessons that you learn from wrestling that 
are just kind of your, your pillars that you abide by today at 40 or 41? Um, I always say this, the juxtaposition between hum- confidence and humility, uh, because you develop this confidence and inner arrogance that if you walk into any room, like you're physically comfortable, right? Like you, you have a presence, you've been through it all, you've endured, you cut 30 pounds in four days, you've been beat up all the time, you've been embarrassed and lost and, and gotten humiliated, so you have that humility. You know that there's always someone you know, faster, stronger, and better, uh, but you also... You know, when you're walking out, uh, you know, to your match or to your fight in that world, you know, you're paired with this dread, but this this utmost confidence that you think you're like a god. And then when you step in the ring or the circle or whatever it is, it kind of all just washes away. And you're just like, it's just muscle memory. and You're just operating. Okay, I got to move. I got to duck. I got to grab him here. I got to execute. And like, but that's a constant like inner monologue for combative uh, artists and fighters or wrestlers. It's just like, you know, you're always... Telling yourself, I'm the best, I'm the best, I'm prepared, I'm ready, I'm going to beat this person, I'm going to beat him. But then those thoughts creep in where you're just like, ah, oh, I did lose that time, or I did my tired, do I feel sick? Ah, my warm-up wasn't that good. So like, and life can be that way, whether you're putting, you know, you have a big meeting, you're going and facing investors, or, you know, you have to have that confidence, but you also have to have that humility. And wrestling gives you the capacity, uh, a huge capacity for suffering and enduring. And that gives you like this badge of honor to go tackle the rest of the world. Uh, Dan Gable, who I listed as like one of my favorite athletes, always said, once you've wrestled, everything else is easy. And obviously that's a big, wide blanket statement, but it has a lot of truth. I think that like, you know, there's tougher things in the world you can do for sure. But, you know, a life of a wrestler um, is a lot of dedication and sacrifice and, uh, and, and suffering uh, for a goal and to accomplish those goals. Um, also, I think, you know, you know kind of where you measure up on a daily basis and a weekly basis with your goals, right? Like you either win or lose the practice, right? You either win or lose in a match and there's no one else's fault but your own. When you're a trader in finance, you're either, you know, you're mark to market profit and loss on the day. You're either winning or losing. The market's up or you're down. And, you know, when you have to answer to investors on a daily basis, weekly, quarterly, and uh, the fiscal year, you know, there's some similarities there. Uh, similarities there. And you have to interact with, you know, other people and there's that team camaraderie. The trading desk is just like a fraternity house almost or a sports team. Um, so I, I think that wrestling specifically has prepared me a lot for a lot of things I'm doing, like, uh, you know, in my career. Um, but also just like, you know, knowing that it's not going to be as hard as what I've been through. Uh, so when I go to tackle new things, I'm confident I can get it done, even if it seems really daunting uh, and difficult. That's awesome. Beautifully said. Uh, and last question, uh, you know, I kind of mentioned this to um, somebody else the other day, but uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be speaking to a university, another athletic program. And my role is to speak to some of the student athletes and also the athletic staff about just general care. And so within the context of care, I always think about the transition from sport and leaving sport. So what do you think you would have said to yourself, whether that was in the 2008 you or the 22 year old you, what are, what would you say to yourself in preparation for that transition? It's a great question. Um, I think I would have said it doesn't have to be your, doesn't have to be your dream job. Um, 
but just take it. Like there's, there was periods of time where it's like, oh, I can do this or that, and you, you flounder a little bit, and that sometimes makes things worse. Like I don't want you to just take any offer, right? But like the biggest thing is you, you know, you take one opportunity at least, another opportunity at least, with the ideal opportunity. So I think some people get the perfect opportunity right away, and then that's their lifetime, their lifetime at Goldman Sachs, their lifetime at you know a venture fund or wherever they go. Um, but you know, there's moments. In, there was moments in my life where I was uh, hesitant, didn't pull the trigger fast enough. I felt, and I was like, I don't really want to do that. I don't know. But you don't know what you're going to learn in that skill set, and you're going to take that to the next thing. And um, I don't know what the advice would be. I was like, you know, be decisive. Basically, you know, the worst decision you can make is no decision. Yeah, a wrong decision you certainly can come back from, but no decision for us. So just make the decision and go. Stay busy. Um, Because when I was, you know, transitioning and hurt, you know, that downtime was not good. It's not not psychological. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Jesse. You have such an Uh, amazing story and it's uh, obviously ongoing. And, um, you know, thank you so much for, for coming on and opening up. I really appreciate it and dealing with my questions, my hard hitting questions. So, and for anyone that wants to kind of find you and follow you, uh, where, where can they see you? Um, well, and my Instagram is Jesse Jansen. Uh, so just my name and then I'm on LinkedIn and different places, Twitter. I don't use that much, but I have a Twitter as well. It's Jesse Jansen one. So I'm around. Thank you so much. It was really fun. And, uh, I hope the end, you know, we, you got something out of it as well. So, <laughs> yes, no question. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For more episodes, please visit our homepage on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And just a friendly reminder that you can watch the full version of all these episodes on YouTube. You can just search for the next chapter with Prim's Ripapet. Subscribe to us, like us, give us a star rating. We really appreciate you listening and showing support. The next chapter with Prim Seripapad is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.